It's August 16th, 2009, and this is The Candid Frame. Welcome to another episode of The Candid Frame. As this year's theme is living the photographic life, I was thinking about how we identify as photographers. We're often defined by what we photograph, be it people, landscapes, animals, birds, or sports. And on a professional level, it would seem to make a lot of sense that we market ourselves for a particular genre of photography. However, today's guest, Lou Jones, boasts a portfolio and a resume that is incredibly diverse. He could be described as a photojournalist, a corporate photographer, a portraitist, and even a cultural anthropologist. He's a photographer that isn't easily pigeonholed. And while you might think that such diversity might result in just a competent collection of images, Lou's photographs are much, much more. His great photographs, the stories behind them, and the story of his photographic life are exceptional and a big reason why I've been a longtime fan and I've invited him on the show. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Lou Jones. Welcome to the Candid Frame. I'm really excited to have you on the show. I appreciate your uh, talking to me. Thank you. So how did you go from a desire to be a physicist to becoming a photographer? Well, it's a kind of a complicated uh, story. The way I tell it is that I was dyslexic, and they both began in... Uh, PH and I turned the wrong way in one day and ended up in photography. But in point of fact, it was a decision uh, that I made after really working for NASA and a couple of small uh, science organizations like that early, early on, right after school. And I wanted to have a little bit more of of a decision. I wanted to have a little bit more control over my direct impact on my own life, and uh, photography offered me a way of being on my own. I realized that I didn't work well with uh, others. I didn't play well in the sandbox with others, and basically, I tell people I've never had a boss. What it, What was it about the camera and what you do with it that, that, that really appealed to you? Well, it was a, it was a strange jump. One day, a long, long time ago, I opened up a couple of uh, books that showed photography being used as a way of communication. And before that, you know, the average person's real introduction or real knowledge of photography is uh, limited to some degree to their wedding photographs, maybe newspaper phot- photographs if if they sort of are paying attention, and maybe a document of their lives. You know, your five friends all with beer bottles in your hand getting a picture taken in front of some monument. But when I saw this book, I realized that the photographers were really going and communicating, and they were communicating in an, in an artful way, which really made, which really resonated with me. And I, I literally took the book out of the library two or three times and just poured through every photograph. 
I never had a, an idea in my head that I was going to make a living several years later with photography. I just became fascinated with the images. And photography at that point became art. And ever since then, I've sort of looked at it in that way. I've never really been strictly a documentarian. I've always thought of the image as being able to stand on its own and be a, a really artful product. And how did you refine your eye, especially during those early years of your career? Much of our time during those first years is spent understanding the technical and looking at the work other accomplished photographers have created, but how do you find a way of working that allows you to move beyond simply copying what someone else was doing and discover your own voice and approach? It's in a, you know, it's a really strange thing that in a, in a negative way, it's really about trial and error. You exactly, your, your point is exactly right. You go about, you look at the sort of giants in photography and if your eye is from the beginning or early on relatively sophisticated, you sort of pick out those pictures that really are quite good or, or different or whatever, and you sort of and you do you imitate them to some degree. Whether you're shooting black and white because you're like Cartier-Bresson, or you're shooting color because you like Ernst Haas, um, you sort of use that saturated colors because you like what they were doing, but you're imitating to some degree. But what happens is every now and then, at least it happened to me, every now and then, I'd push the shutter and several days later, I would get back a box of color slides or something and I would look and maybe one out of every hundred would be something a little unique, and it would just, I'd say, hmm, how did I do that? What was I thinking at that time? And you just sort of build and build. It takes weeks, years to get to that point. And I always sort of use in, in sort of a, as an analogy, I always say that photography is sort of like being in the center of a, of a small town, of sort of a South American town where in the center of the town there's, there's, there's buses, Everybody's standing in the center, the, the transportation center, and you're all getting on buses going in different directions. But you're all together. And you get on a bus, and the bus is full. And you get on the bus, and you go out for several miles, and you get off the bus to catch another bus. That bus has fewer people on it. And you're going out further and further. You get off that bus, you transfer to another bus. There's only a couple of people. That bus dumps you off one time, and there's nobody else. You're out there by yourself. And that's the way I look at it. You're, you're using the resources of all your colleagues and the books and ways of seeing pictures, but eventually you end up way out there on your own, and you're hopefully taking fairly, fairly unique pictures and uh, forging your own directions. It's very interesting, this whole idea that photography is very technical, but that moment you speak of is about when looking at the slides, is, is speaking to that part of the process where it's very intuitive. And sometimes you may not realize what you're doing instinctively, and it takes a while for that other part of your brain to, to catch up, to understand what you've been responding to. So how, how was it for you to, to begin to develop 
that understanding of what you were doing so that you could make it a repeatable and thoughtful thing rather than just merely accidental. That's absolutely right. I mean, the accidental part is plays a major role in how um, photography is very different from all, pretty much all other art forms. We uh, may look at a list that's taught in school of, say, things like that may, may contribute to the art of a picture, and they say, well, we're going to teach you composition today. This is composition 101. You know, you, you have a, a rectangle that you're trying to fill, and everything has to happen on the diagonal, and you have to have things with the golden rule, or, or we have to teach you the, the, the rule of thirds. All of those things we apply, and they come from a tradition, a very long, rich tradition of, say, um, painting. And in re- really, photography uses all of those things, and especially early on, where you use those things to build, to make your, your pictures a little stronger. But in point of fact, photography goes off completely off into Goonie land. It has its own own traditions, which we really don't talk a lot about, which has to do with accident and circumstances and the, and the uh, confluence of different forces that might be the particular time of day, um, weather, uh, the fact that you dropped your camera and it fell down the stairs three or four times before it actually took a picture by upside down. All of those things impact motion that doesn't really res- doesn't resonate in, say, painting or sculpture or other things. Uh, they're always imitating, whereas photography, the fact that two or three things have to come together at exactly that right decisive moment, as Bresson used to talk about it, are really things that really make that one picture that comes out of that box of 36 slides or, or 50 uh, uh, images on a, a, a card now, that one picture that all of those things happen to be just right but are absolutely all wrong using the same criterion as painting and things like that, that make that picture, that award-winning picture or that wonderful image, that's what really is about. And then we start to pull and say, how, what is going on here? And we try to, I try to just build on that. You've been all over the world with your camera, and I wonder how you've managed to do that without pigeonholing yourself. Well, you know, all the advice that I got early on and still continue to was that, you know, you should specialize, you know, all of the people. And I think that that's an absolutely uh, a very important uh, uh, criterion because, you know, you, you, we need to be able to say, well, you know, I really don't like to do this. Well, don't do it. You know, do something that you like. If you like still life, you know, uh, if you like sports or you like landscapes, do that. But what happened was um, falling in love with the tradition of photography and looking at lots and lots of pictures, 
I would find that I could look at a picture of uh, a photojournalist and just say, oh, that is just, you know, more than the niche. It was the image. I've always been drawn to the image for some reason. You know, the image is really sacrosanct to me. It's just whatever you're saying, if it's a still life image, it can be just as potent and sometimes even more so when we're dealing with photo illustration or, or just trying to communicate ideas. So the business has caused me to be a little bit more eclectic because you go out and you say, hey, I do this. I do color and I do slides and I do annual reports and somebody says, well, wait a minute, uh, can you try this? Uh, we, we've got this ad campaign. You say, it's just production at that point. You know, it's just, and I love solving problems. And uh, so I actually started to use my photography and this was a little bit sort of more directed it goes back a few years ago, but not from the very beginning. But I started to use my photography to reflect my world, to reflect my interest. So the fact that I go onto death row or go into the Olympics is purely something I'm interested in that subject matter. And there's no better way to witness it than with a camera. That thing you said about being a problem solver, that's something I often try to stress to my students. People are there to hire someone because they're a good photographer, but they're also looking to hire someone who is able to solve problems. They want people who to resolve issues that they themselves are unable to take care of. If if they see that that quality in a photographer, it increases the likelihood that they will hire him or her as opposed, as opposed to another shooter whose work is, is just as good. The... Um Early on, uh, you know, uh, we're hired by a lot of people, early on especially, to be a, 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 an index finger, a right index finger, you know, somebody to push the button. And, um, and um, the problem becomes it's a matter of survival. People would come to me and said, here's a situation that we have that we want to do and um, we want to be able to go forward, but we haven't been able to figure out exactly what we want. And it's purely a survival. In order to get the job, in order to keep the client, in order to go forward, in order to make a better image, I started to realize I had to solve some of the visual problems long before I was even in the situation to actually take it. In other words, I had to think through what was going to go happen. And so that's where, and you know, if you do it once, if you do it twice, you do it three times, you start to build up those kinds of muscles. And that became something that we started to sell we will go in as the team with you to sell to your client visual concepts, which we will then develop later on. And that became a real sort of signature. Uh, so it became really problem solving. And it becomes more about how you could serve your client in a variety of ways, not 
just deliver a product. To That's them. exactly right. And, and, you know, I call it value added. You know, in other words, you hire me to be a photographer. You hire me to push the button with my, that right index finger. But what I'm going to bring to the table is the ability for you to go in and, you know, we used to, <laughs> we used to, but still do, but it became a big part. We used to go in and actually make sketches that we would send to the art directors, to the designers. We would sketch out a, we would sketch out five or six different ideas, visual ideas before we, and that became, and they would actually start to take those things and make presentations to, to their clients with them. It was a very, but that was value added. In other words, people felt that they were getting something extra, getting an extra eye, getting, and, and also it was much more efficient. It was so much more efficient. What happened was, I didn't have to sort of scatter gun. I didn't have to shotgun pictures. I was able to actually develop complete ideas right there before we even got into the presentation. When people think about going into this business, they focus on trying to figure out who is going to hire them, who's actually going to pay them for making images. But the question that I want to ask you is, who is your ideal client? Well, you know, that's changed a little over the years. In the beginning, you know, I'll never say that I took would take anybody, but you know you took you took anybody that trusted you, you know, in the <laughs> beginning. You took anybody that would take a chance or saw something in you that, uh, you know, and you tried to you tried to uh, work with them and give them the best product. But now, um, the 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 clients that we're seeking are usually clients that we have a little bit more time with. The ideal client is not somebody that says, can you go and at uh, 3.30 on Tuesday take a picture of that? We want somebody who um, says, you know, uh, can you take some time with this and see if you can, you know, so that we can go back. We may be able to, to, there may be a multitude of pictures. You know, there may be more than one. There's a story to be developed or a campaign. So I'm looking for people who will give us a little bit more time um, with the project. And also, uh, and this is not so easy, but people who will give us a shot at subject matter that actually matters. You know, so We've done all the computers and the, the, the products and the uh, clothing and all of that stuff, and we love those clients because they've taught us so much about retail and about how to sell and, and what people are attracted to and, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, honing our skills at marketing. But we're looking for people now who, um, where the end product may benefit a certain segment of our population a little better. Now, one of the bigger problem-solving challenges that a photographer faces has to do with lighting. And I know you've recently come out with a book about the creative use of speed lights. And I want you to talk about that, but I want you to speak to how important the control of light is to your ability to satisfy the needs of your clients. Uh, again, early on, um, when you were starting in this business many years ago, um, one of the biggest hurdles was that we were using 
different kinds of equipment. A lot of times I was shooting with 8x10, which was was absolutely uh, the de rigueur at that time, or 4x5, or two and a quarter, 35 millimeter in many cases was thought of as sort of like a, a, a toy, you know. So we were shooting with big cameras. Well, when you shoot with big cameras and you're shooting with film, boy, you know, the whole thing becomes, uh, the, the, the questions of shutter speed and depth of field become a whole different matter. And also, when you're shooting for publication, you know, you're thinking about how a printer can actually get this image or this idea you have onto paper so that it looks good. So it all became lighting. The fact of what kind of camera. Some of my best clients have been Polaroid, which were the hardest cameras in the world to make look good unless you knew how to really work with light. So I started to, and I fortunately had a couple of good mentors who really were good um, good in the early days of lighting, so they got me started, and then I just started to look and just use more and more and more light. And then, running out all over the world, you end up in, uh, in uh, France, or you end up in Wales, or you end up in Spain, you end up in South America, and you have to do these enormous lighting situations. Well, over the years, I just got to use all kinds of different lighting techniques and perfecting that, which resulted in the cameras becoming smaller and smaller. The 35 millimeter sort of winning out over all of these things because the resolution. And then a few years back, I realized that uh, they had invented this little, little thing called speed light. And everybody uses it in a generic term. It's just a flash to them. But the uh, engineers had stuck little computers. They first stuck computers in the cameras, which made the auto exposure and auto focus and all of these things amazing. They also stuck computers in these flashes. And I was starting to realize, oh, my God, you put a flash on top of your camera, you push the button, and anybody can get a decent, usable picture. But in point of fact, these computers were so sophisticated that you could do all kinds of things. And I realized at one point that you could literally take a speed light, turn it on, throw it as far as your, your, your arm could get it. You could throw several, ten of them, in all kinds of different directions. And then without moving, you could actually get them all to... Um, work and you could actually control the lighting of each one of them individually to make this lighting setup and this was a tremendous leap forward and I realized oh this is great I'm going to start learning how to do this and I read all the books and nobody seemed to be able to do much with it I was like I started calling the manufacturers, and I said, well, when I push this button, it doesn't seem to do that right. They said, yes, we're going to put that book out soon and tell people how to do that. Well, in point of fact, they never did. And so I just realized that uh, people were using their flashes the same the way they've been doing for the last 10 or 20 years. And we've moved into a whole new, we moved into the same generation of flashes 
that we have with digital cameras, and that's the result of the book. What I like about the book is that it sees speed lights as more, more than just tools to be used when there isn't enough light. It's about using light creatively, you, you, how to use it to interpret a subject to the creative use of light. That's right, and <clears throat> you got to remember that to some degree we learned that over the last 25, 30 years with big, enormous power packs that we had to pack into cases and ship all over the country, all over the world. Now you can take that same sort of – so the, the practice has already been developed, and now you can take these little teeny uh, slightly bigger than a cigarette pack things and do almost the same thing with them. And, the, the, and, 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 and so that you can be creative. You don't just don't stick it on the top and do a flash picture with a big black shadow behind it. Now we can use them in the same way that we used our studio strobes, and we can incorporate – available light. Um, I just did a big project for Lonely Planet, the guidebook, where they had us shooting, oh, Jesus, I think we had over 70, 75 different images, and I probably lit half of them with speed lights. I did the entire thing because of portability, because of cost in production. I did the whole thing, but what I was able to do was I, I actually learned a whole nother level is that I could put a couple of speed lights up and play them like a flute, like a piano. I could raise up the power. I could lower it down without moving so that every different image I took was different. I could never do that. You know, if I wanted to do that with big power packs, I'd have to pull out the Polaroid camera. I'd have to change things. I'd have to go to the, go to the source. I'd have to change dials, come back, shoot a Polaroid, wait for the Polaroid. This way, I could literally just raise the power of this one, lower the power of that one, click, look at the back and say, mm, that's not quite right. And just at clubs, jazz clubs, I could literally change the lighting without moving. So that's what, what the, uh, you're absolutely right in that. It's a creative use of being able to supplement all kinds of different light situations. And it has to be rooted in an awareness of light. I, I see a lot of websites like the Strobus where they're, where they're dedicated to using speed lights. And I see some excellent work being, being done there, produced by people who, who follow the blog. But sometimes I see people copying a technique without having a real awareness of light, particularly ambient light. Because I think awareness to the subtlety of light, especially the presence of shadows, suddenly makes the speed light as important to a photographer as a paintbrush is to a painter. That's exactly right. And, and that's where you can start to streak in little pieces of light here and, and place them. The Strobus does a marvelous job. They are an amazing. They have increased the awareness of the use of these small lights, which were always sort of just you know, used by uh, newspaper photographers and wedding photographers in the past. You know, they increased this ability uh, of, of people being aware, but they still have not made the leap forward to let the light do its own job, do its own work, which was the, 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 the byproduct, believe it or not, of the engineers putting a computer into the light 
Now you have two computers. You have the light computer, you have the camera computer, and they interact with each other. Each other. And by allowing them to do their job better than you, you can actually, you know, play symphonies with your light uh, or play jazz. You know, you can improvise with your light all in one, say, 10-minute sitting, which is something I could never do. You know, I was always limited by how much time I had with my studio strokes because I actually had to stop, reshoot, wait for the Polaroid. And we learned how to do that well. But this we have. We, can, we have instantaneous feedback. And um, the strobus does a great job, which, which I just allowed them for making people aware of these, these, um, these amazing tools. But they still want you to mainly use them on manual. One of the things I'm curious to hear about are those situations where you may not have a lot of time to make an image, where you have to do multiple setups but are limited in time with a location or a subject. What are some of the challenges you face beyond the time constraints in terms of how you are going to use light for this situation or with the subject, particularly with some of your corporate clients? Well, you know, you mentioned the, probably the most painful situation that you can encounter without somebody just not liking you or not like is the fact that you have these corporate people who um, have restricted time. But more importantly, usually you've got five or six people in front of you before you even get to the person that you're actually supposed to. And it's all about personality. You know, one of the things I discovered a few years ago was, and, and especially in the re annual report, because you're always getting someone, and it's sometimes the CEO or the manager that you're supposed to photograph, but very often it's their handlers that will say, oh, we can only give you five minutes. Well, I just realized that you just, that, that's impossible. I mean, you know, President Obama, maybe, but you say, I'm doing this annual report for you. I'm making you look good. And if you don't give me enough time to make you look good, you will look bad. And you will get, you will give me, if you can't give me, you can't give me 15 minutes of your time, then you will give me 15 minutes of your time every time you see me from that moment on, if that's a bad picture cussing me out. Mm -hmm. So therein you establish, you really do have to take control of these situations. And I think a lot of photographers don't. I say, you're important. You're important to make a good picture. Let's take that time to make a good picture and you give me my time. They're always going to short you, but you got to, push beyond that five minutes. You've got to push beyond that 15 that they try to make you. But I just did a, uh, last year I did an annual report where I had 12, um, I think it was 12 people on the board of directors and they literally were going from one meeting to the other. We had to set up this enormous background uh, on the 23rd floor in New York City to make this great picture of the board of directors. And the guy literally said, I had 15 minutes, and I did the whole thing in 12. 
point being is that, you know, you do take that practice, but it's all about personality at that point. The technical preparedness, you know, that's why they hired you. But it's all about getting that CEO and putting him into the position where you wanted them. I had to take control over all those 12 people and bulldoze them. The art director and the designer were behind me, absolutely chewing their fingernails because I'm laying hands on people at that moment. It's about personality at that point. And uh, it's, a, it's a pretty profound thing. I'm shaking in my boots after the shot's over. But during the shoot, I'm telling people, no, you want to stand right here. No, I don't think I, no, no, no. Just you need to do what I need to do because we, don't, we only have a few minutes. So you need to stand right here. Turn a little bit to your right. Okay, drop your arms. Okay, drop those, chi- everybody, drop your chins. Okay, no, you move over this. It's all about taking control for that few minutes. And they will give you crap for that. Six months later, when they've got the, the annual report, it's an t- entirely different matter. If you take a bad picture, that's that's really bad. You know, that's that's the worst thing that can happen to you. Yeah, it's all about relationships. It doesn't matter what you're photographing. If you're creating an image to serve the needs of someone else or trying to get a gig or trying to get paid for that gig, it's all about your ability to engage and communicate with people. And I think it's one of the things that people don't consider when they think about doing this for a living. So how have you developed and sustained sustained those relationships that have allowed you to maintain and grow your business and your career? Well, uh, I'd like to say that that personality thing is natural. And I do believe that a lot of the people who are good salesmen and are successful as, as good photographers that, that probably give the gab, that personality is probably a fairly natural thing. For me, that's not the case. And so I had to listen to a lot of people and I had to be thrown into a lot of situations to see here is a, is a crossroads in this discussion with this art director as I'm trying to show them my portfolio to get work with this client as I'm trying to convince them that the, that the image that they had in mind maybe is not in their best interest, maybe we should look over here, all of those things, all of that stuff is studied. You know, It's what makes people respond to you. I used to tell my studio manager, this was a few years ago, I used to tell my studio manager that you have to go into a very tenuous situation you're just a photographer. You're, you're, you're hired help. You go in and you meet a manager whose time and the time of the company is very important. Not only do you have to convince them to let you do what you want to do, which costs them money because there's no productivity. They're, uh, you know, I shot in Japan at, in Mazda once where they literally stopped the lines of cars. They're dumping out tens of thousands of cars every day there. They literally had to stop production while I photographed the president in front of the production line. They're losing lots and lots of money. They know that. 
They resent you for that. But not only do you have to convince them to do that, but at the end, they've got to like it. And so that becomes, and that has been practiced, practice, practice, practice for years to talk to people in a way in which you're, you're, you're saying, I'm sympathetic to your situation, but we're going we're gonna to make magic here. And this is going to contribute to you even better in the future if we do this right one time. And that's all been practiced. It really is. It's really looking at body language and, and hearing what they say and sort of parroting it back to them with your twist on it. It sounds... It, sounds like manipulation and to some degree it is but in point of fact you're trying to do something you're all I always say that to my final my final thing is that this is being done to benefit you and when they hear that very often especially the, the ones that really understand respond to that very very well yeah. you know you seem to have a lot of fun and there are a lot of photographers that don't last half as long as you have because a lot of them experience a burnout or they get into a rut. So how do you maintain a positive attitude about what you do after decades of facing all the challenges of, of running a business? How do you keep having fun? What's your secret? Uh, I'm not sure it's a secret. I think that when I wake up in the morning I, and I realize that I'm actually making a living taking pictures. Now, the upsides and the downsides are profound. I mean, the, the, sometimes the, the highs are just, you know, you're just rarefied air. And sometimes you get that phone call where somebody calls you and calls you every name in the book and that whole thing, and you have to re-respond. But the fact, at the end of the day, I'm still making photographs. And not only am I still having fun at it, but I'm having more fun than I ever have. I adore the ability to talk to people about images. I adore the images. I adore my images and many of the other images. It's just amazingly, and you, and you can see how the greater population has responded to photography over the last few decades. Now everybody wants it. When I first started, we were outlaws. People looked at us like, Oh, we had something stinky on the bottom of our shoe. Now everybody wants to be a photographer. The, the Internet, the magazines, the, the ways that people are using imagery has become, has just blossomed. So being a part of that for so long and to be able to actually think about new ways of using images because of the technology and because there's so many problems in the world that we need to solve and photography is a perfect vehicle for that. That's given me, I mean, I just, I mean, literally, I just pinch myself almost every day saying, I'm still making pictures. My last question is to ask my guests to recommend one photographer whose work they suggest our listeners check out, and it can be anyone, from someone you've long admired to someone you've recently discovered. So who would that be for you and why? Boy, that's a good one. Um, 
you know, as I mentioned before, you know, you get on that you get on that uh, bus in the middle of town, and there's lots of people that you, whose work you look at. And as you get further and further out, um, the person I'm, you know, I'm still looking at um, Bresson, of course. I'm looking at, uh, but he's dead. I'm looking at. Um, I've always been an admirer of Ernst Haas, who has never quite gotten all his. But um, uh, I'm looking at. Uh, um, Sebastian Salgado. Yeah, I love his work. I love the kinds of things he's pointing his camera at, and uh, that's about it. Would there be one of those that you would especially recommend? I would. I would. Um, I would really say to look at Salgado not only for the imagery, which I think is especially the new stuff that he's doing but also the commitment that he makes to these projects, which I just, I mean, I mean, so jealous of his ability to make commitments to long-term. His, I would say the death row project that I did was as much a result of my looking at how he had spent years developing certain ideas and that it came out of, Oh, this needs to be looked at in tremendous depth. And uh, I've also done a pregnancy book, uh, a book that we're trying to sell to a publisher that's gone on for 20 years, all a result of, uh, of, of things like that, uh, looking at his work and things like that. Well, thank you for the recommendation, and thank you so much for making time for us today. I appreciate the chance. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the show. And before I go, I want to announce a new better photo course I'm offering called The Pursuit of Light. It's based on my workshop presentation at the Better Photo Summit, and the first session begins in September. If you are a new student to Better Photo and are interested in this or any other course, send me a message on Twitter, and I'll send you a promo code to receive a discount on this or any other Better Photo course. If you have any comments or suggestions, email me at thecandidframe at gmail.com, post a message on the blog or on the Facebook fan page, or follow me on Twitter. Links for each can be found on the blog page at thecandidframe.com. Till next time, this is Ibarian X. Pirello, and this is The Candid Frame. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com photocastnetwork.com